Chapter Six of Marcia Schuyler by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. He stood a moment by the door, looking at her, half startled. Then he came over beside her, put his hands upon her shoulders, looking down into her upturned, veiled face. My child, he said tenderly, my little Marcia, is this you? I did not know you in all this beautiful dress. You look as your own mother looked when she was married. I remember perfectly as if it were but yesterday, her face as she stood by your father's side. I was but a young man then, you know, and it was my first wedding in my new church, so you see I could not forget it. Your mother was a beautiful woman, Marcia, and you are like her both in face and life. The tears came to Marcia's eyes, and her lips trembled. Are you sure, child, went on the gentle voice of the old man, that you understand what a solemn thing you are doing? It is not a light thing to give yourself in marriage to any man. You are so young yet. Are you doing this thing quite willingly, little girl? Are you sure? Your father is a good man and a dear old friend of mine, but I know what has happened has been a terrible blow to him and a great humiliation. It has perhaps unnerved his judgment for the time. No one should have brought pressure to bear upon a child like you to make you marry against your will. Are you sure it is all right, dear? Oh, yes, sir. Marcia raised her tear-filled eyes. I am doing it quite of myself. No one has made me. I was glad I might. It was so dreadful for David. But, child, do you love him? the old minister said, searching her face closely. Marcia's eyes shone out radiant and childlike through her tears. Oh, yes, sir, I love him, of course. No one could help loving David. There was a tap at the door, and the squire entered. With a sigh, the minister turned away, but there was trouble in his heart. The love of the girl had been all too frankly confessed. It was not as he would have had things for a daughter of his, but it could not be helped, of course, and he had no right to interfere. He would like to speak to David, but David had not come out of his room yet. When he did, there was but a moment for them alone, and all he had opportunity to say was, Mr. Spafford, you will be good to the little girl, and remember she is but a child. She has been dear to us all. David looked at him wonderingly, earnestly, in reply. I will do all in my power to make her happy, he said. The hour had come, and all things, just as Madame Schuyler had planned, were ready. The minister took his place, and the impatient bridesmaids were in a flutter, wondering why Kate did not call them in to see her. Slowly, with measured step, as if she had practiced many times, Marcia, the maiden, walked down the hall on her father's arm. He was bowed with his trouble, and his face wore marks of the sudden calamity that had befallen his house, but the watching guests thought it was for sorrow at giving up his lovely Kate, and they said one to another, How much he loved her! The girl's face drooped with gentle gravity. She scarcely felt the presence of the guests she had so much dreaded, for to her the ceremony was holy. She was giving herself as a sacrifice for the sin of her sister. 
she was too young and inexperienced to know all that would be thought and said as soon as the company understood she also felt secure behind that film of lace it seemed impossible that they could know her so softly and so mistily it shut her from the world it was like a kind of moving house about her a protection from all eyes so sheltered she might go through the ceremony with composure as yet she had not begun to dread the afterward the hall was wide through which she passed and the day was bright but the windows were so shadowed by the waiting bridesmaids that the light did not fall in full glare upon her and it was not strange they did not know her at once she heard their smothered exclamations of wonder and admiration and one kate's dearest friend whispered softly behind her oh kate why did you keep us waiting you sly girl how lovely you are you look like an angel straight from heaven there were other whispered words which marcia heard sadly they gave her no pleasure the words were for kate not her what would they say when they knew all there was david in the distance waiting for her how fine he looked in his wedding clothes how proud kate might have been of him how pitiful was his white face he had summoned his courage and put on a mask of happiness for the eyes of those who saw him but it could not deceive the heart of marcia surely not since the days when jacob served seven years for rachel and then lifted the bridal veil to look upon the face of her sister leah walked their sadder bridegroom on this earth than david spafford walked that day down the stairs and through the wide hall they came marcia not daring to look up yet seeing familiar glimpses as she passed that green plaid silk lap at one side of the parlor door in which lay two nervous little hands and a neatly folded pocket handkerchief belonged to sabrina bates she knew and the round lace collar a little farther on fastened by the brooch with a colored derogatype encircled by a braid of faded brown hair under glass must be about the neck of aunt polly there was not another brooch like that in new york state marcia felt sure beyond were uncle joab's small meek sunday boots towing in and next were little feet covered by white stockings and slippers fastened with crossed black ribbons some child's not harriet marcia dared not raise her eyes to identify them now she must fix her mind upon the great things before her she wondered at herself for noticing such trivial things when she was walking up to the presence of the great god and there before her stood the minister with his open book now at last with the most of the audience behind her shut in by that film of lace she could raise her eyes to the minister's familiar face take david's arm without letting her hand tremble much and listen to the solemn words read out to her for her alone they seemed to be read david's heart she knew was crushed and it was only a form for him she must take double vows upon her for the sake of the wrong done to him so she listened dearly beloved we are gathered together how the words thrilled her in the sight of god and in the presence of this company to join together this man and woman in the bonds of holy matrimony a deathly stillness rested upon the room and the painful throbbing of her heart was all the little bride could hear she was glad she might look straight into the dear old face of the old minister 
Had her mother felt this way when she was being married? Did her stepmother understand it? Yes, she must in part at least, for she had bent and kissed her most tenderly upon the brow just before leaving her, a most unusually sentimental thing for her to do. It touched Marcia deeply, though she was fond of her stepmother at all times. She waited breathless with drooped eyes while the minister demanded, If any man can show just cause why they may not be lawfully joined together, let him now declare it, or else hereafter forever hold his peace. What if someone should recognize her, and, thinking she had usurped Kate's place, speak out and stop the marriage? How would David feel, and she? She would sink into the floor. Oh, did any of them know? How she wished she dared raise her eyes to look about and see. But she must not. She must listen. She must shake off these worldly thoughts. She was not hearing for idle thinking. It was a solemn, holy vow that she was taking upon herself for life. She brought herself sharply back to the ceremony. It was to David the minister was talking now. Wilt thou love her, comfort her, honor and keep her, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all other, keep thee only unto her, so long as ye both shall live? It was hard to make David promise that when his heart belonged to Kate. She wondered that his voice could be so steady when it said, I will. And the white glove of Kate's, which was just a trifle large for her, trembled on David's arm as the minister next turned to her. Wilt thou, Marcia? Ah, it was out now, and the sharp rustle of silk and stiff linen showed that all the company were aware at last who was the bride, but the minister went steadily on. He cared not what the listening assembly thought. He was talking earnestly to his little friend, Marcia. Have this man to be thy wedded husband, to live together after God's ordinance in the holy state of matrimony? Wilt thou obey him and serve him, love, honor, and keep him, in sickness and in health? The words of the pledge went on. It was not hard. The girl felt she could do all that. She was relieved to find it no more terrible, and to know that she was no longer acting a lie. They all knew who she was now. She held up her flower-like head and answered in her clear voice that made her few schoolmates present gasp with admiration. I will. And the dear old minister's wife, sitting sweet and dove-like in her soft gray poplin, fine white kerchief and cap of book muslin, smiled to herself at the music in Marcia's voice and nodded approval. She felt that all was well with her little friend. They waited, those astonished people, till the ceremony was concluded and the prayer over, and then they broke forth. There had been lifted brows and looks passing from one to another, of question, of disclaiming any knowledge in the matter, and just as soon as the minister turned and took the bride's hand to congratulate her, the heads bent together behind fans, and the soft buzz of whispers began. What does it mean? Where is Kate? She isn't in the room. Did he change his mind at the last minute? How old is Marcia? Mercy me, nothing but a child. Are you sure? Why, my Marianne is older than that by three months, and she's no more able to become mistress of a home than a nine-days-old kitten. Are you sure it's Marcia? Didn't the minister make a mistake in the name? It looked to me like Kate. Look again. 
She's put her veil back. No, it can't be. Yes, it is. No, it looks like Kate. Her hair's done the same. But no, Kate never had such a sweet, innocent look as that. Why, when she was a child, her face always had a sharpness to it. Look at Marcia's eyes, poor lamb. I don't see how her father could bear it, and she's so young. But Kate, where can she be? What has happened? You don't say. Yes, I did see that captain about again last week or so. Do you believe it? Surely she never would. Who told you? Was he sure? But Maria and Janet are bridesmaids, and they didn't see any signs of anything. They were over here yesterday. Yes, Kate showed them everything, and planned how they would all walk in. No, she didn't do anything queer, for Janet would have mentioned it. Janet always sees everything. Well, they say he's a good man, and Marcia'll be well provided for. Madame Schuyler'll be relieved about that. Marcia can't ever lead her the dance Kate has among the young men. How white he looks! Do you suppose he loves her? What on earth can it all mean? Do you suppose Kate feels bad? Where is she, anyway? Wouldn't she come down? Well, if t'was his choosing, it serves her right. She's too much of a flirt for a good man, and maybe he found her out. She's probably got just what she deserves, and I think Marcia'll make a good little wife. She always was a quiet, grown-up child, and Madame Schuyler has trained her well. But what will Kate do now? Hush, they are coming this way. How do you suppose we can find out? Go ask Cousin Janet. Perhaps they've told her, or Aunt Polly. Surely she knows. But Aunt Polly sat with pursed lips of disapproval. She had not been told, and it was her prerogative to know everything. She always made a point of being on hand early at all funerals and weddings, especially in the family circle, and learning the utmost details which she dispensed at her discretion to latecomers in fine sepulchral whispers. Now she sat silent, disgraced, unable to explain a thing. It was unhandsome of Sarah Schuyler, she felt, though no more than she might have expected of her, she told herself. She had never liked her. Well, wait until her opportunity came. If they did not wish her to say the truth, she must say something. She could at least tell what she thought, and what more natural than to let it be known that Sarah Schuyler had always held a dislike for Marcia, and to suggest that it was likely she was glad to get her off her hands. Aunt Polly meant to find a trail somewhere, no matter how many times they threw her off the scent. Meantime for Marcia, the sun seemed to have shined out once more with something of its old brightness. The terrible deed of self-renunciation was over, and familiar faces actually were smiling upon her and wishing her joy. She felt the flutter of her heart in her throat beneath the string of pearls, and wondered if, after all, she might hope for a little happiness of her own. She could climb no more fences, nor wade in gurgling brooks, but might there not be other happy things as good? A little touch of the pride of life had settled upon her. The relatives were coming with pleasant words and kisses. The blushes upon her cheeks were growing deeper. She almost forgot David in the pretty excitement. A few of her girlfriends ventured shyly near, as one might look at a mate suddenly and unexpectedly translated into eternal bliss. 
they put out cold fingers in salute with distant, stiff phrases belonging to the grown-up world. Not one of them, save Mary Ann, dared recognize their former bond of playmates. Mary Ann leaned down and whispered with a giggle, Say, you didn't need to envy Kate, did you? My, ain't you in clover. Say, Marsh, wistfully, do invite me for a visit sometime, won't you? Now Marianne was not quite on a par with the Schuylers socially, and had it not been for a distant mutual relative, she would not have been asked to the wedding. Marcia never liked her very much, but now, with the uncertain, dim future, it seemed pleasant and homelike to think of a visit from Marianne, and she nodded and said childishly, Sometime, Marianne, if I can. Marianne squeezed her hand, kissed her, blushed, and giggled herself out of the way of the next comer. They went out to the dining-room and sat around the long table. It was Marcia's timid hand that cut the bride-cake, and all the room full watched her. Seeing the pretty color come and go in her excited cheeks, they wondered that they had never noticed before how beautiful Marcia was growing. A handsome couple they would make. And they looked from Marcia to David and back again, wondering and trying to fathom the mystery. It was gradually stealing about the company the truth about Kate and Captain Leavenworth. The minister had told it in his sad and gentle way. Just the facts. No gossip. Naturally, everyone was bristling with questions, but not much could be got from the minister. I really do not know, he would say in his courteous, old-worldly way, and few dared ask further. Perhaps the minister, wise by reason of much experience, had taken care to ask as few questions as possible himself, and not to know too much, before undertaking this task for his old friend the squire. And so Kate's marriage went into the annals of the village, at least so far as that morning was concerned, quietly and with little exclamation before the family. The squire and his wife controlled their faces wonderfully. There was an austerity about the squire as he talked with his friends that was new to his pleasant face, but Madame conversed with her usual placid self-poise, and never gave cause for conjecture as to her true feelings. There were some who dared to offer their surprised condolences. To such, the stepmother replied that of course the outcome of events had been a sore trial to the squire and all of them, but they were delighted at the happy arrangement that had been made. She glanced contentedly toward the child bride. It was a revelation to the whole village that Marcia had grown up and was so handsome. Dismay filled the breasts of the village gossips. They had been defrauded. Here was a fine scandal which they had failed to discover in time and spread abroad in its due course. Everybody was shy of speaking to the bride. She sat in her lovely finery like some wild rose caught as a sacrifice. Yet everyone admitted that she might have done far worse. David was a good man, with prospects far beyond most young men of his time. Moreover, he was known to have a brilliant mind, and the career he had chosen, that of journalism, in which he was already making his mark, was one that promised to be lucrative as well as influential. It was all very hurried at the last. Madame Schuyler and Dolly the maid helped her off with the satin and lace finery, 
and she was soon out of her bridal attire and struggling with the intricacies of Kate's traveling costume. Marcia was not Marcia any longer, but Mrs. David Spafford. She had been made to feel the new name almost at once, and it gave her a sense of masquerading pleasant enough for the time being, but with a dim foreboding of nameless dread and emptiness for the future, like all masquerading which must end sometime. And when the mask was taken off, how sad if one is not to find one's real self again, or worse still, if one may never remove the mask, but must grow to it and be it from the soul. All this Marcia felt but dimly, of course, for she was young and light-hearted naturally, and the excitement and pretty things about her could not but be pleasant. To have Kate's friends stand about her, half shyly trying to joke with her as they might have done with Kate, to feel their admiring glances and half-envious references to her handsome husband, almost intoxicated her for the moment. Her cheeks grew rosier as she tied on Kate's pretty poke bonnet, whose nodding blue flowers had been brought over from Paris by a friend of Kate's. It seemed a shame that Kate should not have her things after all. The pleasure died out of Marcia's eyes as she carefully looped the soft blue ribbons under her round chin and drew on Kate's long gloves. There was no use denying the fact that Kate's outfit was becoming to Marcia, for she had that complexion that looks well with any color under the sun, though in blue she was not at her best. When Marcia was ready, she stood back from the little looking-glass with a frightened, half-childish gaze about the room. Now that the last minute was come, there was no one to understand Marcia's feelings nor help her. Even the girls were merely standing there waiting to say the last formal farewell that they might be free to burst into an astonished chatter of exclamations over Kate's romantic disappearance. They were Kate's friends, not Marcia's, and they were bidding Kate's clothes goodbye for want of the original bride. Marcia's friends were too young and too shy to do more than stand back in awe and gaze at their mate so suddenly promoted to a life which but yesterday had seemed years away for any of them. So Marcia walked alone down the hall, yet, no, not all the way alone. A little wrinkled hand was laid upon her gloved one, and a little old lady, her true friend, the minister's wife, walked down the stairs with the bride arm in arm. Marcia's heart fluttered back to warmth again, and was glad for her friend, yet all she said was, "'My dear!' but there was that in her touch and the tone of her gentle voice that comforted Marcia. She stood at the edge of the steps, with her white hair shining in the morning, her kind-faced husband just behind her during all the farewell, and Marcia felt happier because of her motherly presence. The guests were all out on the piazza in the gorgeousness of the summer morning. David stood on the flagging below the step beside the open coach door, a carriage lap-robe over his arm and his hat on, ready. He was talking with the squire. Everyone was looking at them, and they were entirely conscious of the fact. They laughed and talked with studied pleasantness, though there seemed to be an undertone of sadness that the most obtuse guest could not fail to detect. Harriet, as a small flower-girl, stood upon the broad low step, ready to fling posies before the bride as she stepped into the coach. The little boys, to whom a wedding merely meant a delightful increase of opportunities, 
stood behind a pillar munching cake, more of which protruded from their bulging pockets. Marcia, with a lump in her throat that threatened tears, slipped behind the people, caught the two little stepbrothers in her arms, and smothered them with kisses, amid their loud protestations and the laughter of those who stood about. But the little skirmish had served to hide the tears, and the bride came back most decorously to where her stepmother stood awaiting her with a smile of complacent, almost completed, duty upon her face. She wore the sense of having carried off a trying situation in a most creditable manner, and she knew she had won the respect and awe of every matron present thereby. That was a great deal to Madame Schuyler. The stepmother's arms were around her, and Marcia remembered how kindly they had felt when they first clasped her little body years ago, and she had been kissed and told to be a good little girl. She had always liked her stepmother. And now, as she came to say good-bye to the only mother she had ever known, who had been a true mother to her in many ways, her young heart almost gave way, and she longed to hide in that ample bosom and stay under the wing of one who had so ably led her thus far along the path of life. Perhaps Madame Schuyler felt the clinging of the girl's arms about her, and perchance her heart rebuked her that she had let so young and inexperienced a girl go out into the cares of life all of a sudden in this way. At least she stooped and kissed Marcia again and whispered, You have been a good girl, Marcia. Afterwards, Marcia cherished that sentence among memory's dearest treasures. It seemed as though it meant she had fulfilled her stepmother's first command, given on the night when her father brought home their new mother. Then the flowers were thrown upon the pavement to make it bright for the bride. She was handed into the coach behind the white-haired negro coachman, and by his side Kate's fine new hair trunk. Ah, that was a bitter touch. Kate's trunk! Kate's things! Kate's husband! If it had only been her own little moth-eaten trunk that had belonged to her mother, and filled with her own things, and if he had only been her own husband. Yet she wanted no other than David. Only if he could have been her David. Then Madame Schuyler, her heart still troubled about Marcia, stepped down and whispered, David, you will remember she is young. You will deal gently with her? Gravely David bent his head and answered, I will remember. She shall not be troubled. I will care for her as I would care for my own sister. And Madame Schuyler turned away half-satisfied. After all, was that what woman wanted? Would she have been satisfied to have been cared for as a sister? Then gravely, with his eyes half-unseeing her, the father kissed his daughter good-bye, David got into the coach, the door was slammed shut, and the white horses arched their necks and stepped away amid a shower of rice and slippers. End of chapter 6